Welcome back to another episode of By Study and By Faith, where we take a look at critical thinking skills and try to apply them to becoming a better believer in Jesus Christ and apply them to LDS theology and history. I'm Zach Wright, and we've got a fun episode today. We're going to be talking a little bit about logical fallacies, which is always super exciting. But before we launch into that, we have a few logistical things. So again, we have the FAIR conference coming up here in the next couple of weeks from August 2nd to August 4th. Uh, general tickets are $150. Um, one of the things, though, that's still up and going is the student scholarship. So besides having a discounted student ticket price, it's about $55 if memory serves, uh, we also have a um, student scholarship program. So anyone from the ages of 16 to 24 can write an essay and be entered in kind of a lottery to be able to get free tickets to be able to attend the conference. So you'll just be able to come and watch all the speakers, just be able to meet with a lot of uh, similar-minded people who are trying to be able to study LDS theology, LDS history, and it's super exciting. I'm going to be going. We hope to be able to see you there. Uh, be sure to take a look on the website just to uh, take a look at the tickets and the scholarship because it's still up and going. We haven't had a ton of submissions yet for the scholarship, so you still have a good chance of being able to win. So take a look at that. On top of that, I'm still going to take a moment to plug Jennifer Roach's Come Follow Me with Fair show that's on the YouTube and also on the Fair website itself. She's awesome. She goes over uh, typical questions that Latter-day Saints run into when they read the New Testament texts and kind of looks at them from a unique perspective. She's a convert and so she's able to kind of bounce back and forth between how the typical evangelical understands New Testament texts versus how we understand them. It helps kind of bridge the divide. And so I find it really useful. You should definitely, definitely check her stuff out. In the meantime, though, we're about all set to get started. So in the last article, we took some time to discuss the basics about logic, like how to build arguments, how to um, establish premises, how to form syllogisms, kind of basic logic as a methodology of being able to prove something. However, it doesn't really take a genius to know that some arguments are better than others. So, for instance, we have deductive reasoning. In order for that to be valid, you have to make sure that you have premises that support the conclusion. If you don't have premises that support that conclusion, the argument inevitably falls apart. And that's usually what's referred to when we talk about logical fallacies. It's there's a there's a bit of a history and there's a bit of a ongoing debate as to what a fallacy is. And I'll be sure to supply some links so you can explore that a little bit more fully later. But needless to say, at least how we're going to be using the term fallacy, we're going to be looking at the uh, we're going to be looking at this idea that the premises don't support the arguments. So, unlike kind of previous episodes where I kind of have a structured very neatly in like three individual little like subparts of the paper. Today is pretty much just going to be an info dump where I go over a, a large proportion of logical fallacies that Latter-day Saints typically run into, specifically about 
talking about LDS history and, and theology and the like. The thing is, though, what's important to realize is that critical thinkers need to be able to understand what arguments are good and which arguments are bad. Because kind of as we were talking about last time, we need to be able to make decisions as critical thinkers and solve problems. And the best way to go about doing that is making sure we can analyze information in an effective way and come to an understanding of what's true and what's not. And so logic can definitely be useful in that, but we have to make sure, like with all tools, we use that. We, we use logic properly. If not, we begin to run into problems, as we will go over a little bit today. So let's get into it. Logical fallacies are best understood as thou shalt not commandments in logical thinking. They, they severely cripple your capacity to make points and arrive at correct conclusions. Uh, those of you who have studied uh, Jewish theology, the, the Jewish law, the, the Pentateuch, has about 613 commandments, um, with some more famous ones being given more attention and love than maybe the other ones. So while there aren't 613 logical fallacies that I know of, there are many logical fallacies, and we're not going to have time to be able to go over all of them today. But I was able to pick out, I think I counted about 25 in here that we're going to be able to go over today. So I encourage you to take some time to ponder how you may encounter these fallacies on a day-to-day -day basis. And hopefully you're able to kind of come to an understanding as to why these fallacies are as problematic as they are. So let's take a look. The ad hominem fallacy is an excellent place to start. Um, it's just about as easy to explain as it is to encounter. It's, it's basically where you have the, the arguer, the person making the fallacy, attacking their opponent rather than attacking their argument. So, for example, just this last week while I was engaging in uh, classic Facebook debates, as you know, normal people do, I was called, I was called Hitler because I wasn't, I, as a moderator on a specific board somewhere, I, I said that we shouldn't allow spam to be posted. And this kind of personal attack tries to discredit me by associating me with one of the most evil people ever recorded in history. Um, but as you can imagine, that doesn't do all that much to discredit the idea of why spam shouldn't be allowed in an actual discussion. And it's unfortunate because this fallacy is kind of common in a lot of religious and also political debate. Um, and it's done by it, it's done by non-members and members alike. So just be really careful. Make sure that you're really going after the arguments and ideas as opposed to the people behind them. In a similar vein to the previous one, we have the fallacy of faulty motives or argument from motives. So this fallacy seeks to discredit an argument based on the motives of the person making the argument, whereas they, they make assumptions or attack the, the alleged motives of the person presenting something. So an example of where I see this very often in discussions about LDS theology is how Joseph Smith presented polygamy. Uh, Joseph Smith claimed that the command to practice polygamy came from God, but critics of the church have often claimed in the past that Joseph was seeking explicitly to satisfy his own sexual desires. 
Even if we were to ignore the plethora of quotes that exist of the people who practice polygamy saying, no, it's not just about um, you know, sexual satisfaction, there's a lot more going on here. Trying to attack Joseph's motive here doesn't actually do anything to attack the command or to attack the idea that that, that command came from God. I know that that's a bit of a weird thing to think about. Um, there's probably a bit more there, but it does serve to show that specifically attacking the motive of the person doesn't necessarily disqualify something as being true or not. An ad populum fallacy, it's, it's more commonly known as the bandwagon fallacy, is this idea that where the arguer assumes that because a lot of people hold to a specific position, it is therefore true. So if even if you've heard uh, versions of this, like everyone's doing it, so you should too, or how could it be possible for so many people to be wrong about something? Then they've committed the bandwagon fallacy or something like unto it. So for example, e even if thousands of general Christians believe that the concept of biblical inerrancy is true, that doesn't necessarily make it true. And you know there are interesting arguments to be made that it's not. But this fallacy should also be avoided when it comes to scholarship as well. While a consensus of scholars may provide a lot of confidence, the consensus of scholars alone doesn't automatically entail something to be true. So that's, that's another thing to consider. The next fallacy is another one called circular reasoning, also known as begging the question. It's a fallacy that's characterized by assumptions of the conclusion's truthfulness being found in the premises of the argument. So last time we talked a little bit about how premises stack on each other to form a conclusion. But with this fallacy, it, it may sound a bit confusing, but it's basically where the there are premises that already assume that the conclusion is true found there. So can, I, I was able to find an actual argument where this is kind of employed. I've changed the words up a little bit, but this is basically it. So somebody asked the question, why is the Bible inspired scripture? And then this, this person responded, because the Bible is inspired and it follows the patterns of scripture outlined in the Bible. So you can, you can probably see the problem there immediately. The conclusion states that the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says that it's the word of God. And so the, the problem here is that deductive reasoning necessitates that the premises support the conclusion, not that the conclusion is required in order for the premises to be supported. If, if you really were to apply that kind of reasoning, you could hypothetically say all kinds of things that really aren't true. So that's why, that, that, that's why the conclusion can't really be used to prove the, the premises. And arguments like this beg the question of why the conclusion is true, hence the name. This next one has kind of a fun name to it, the, the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy. This is also known as the Texas marksman fallacy or the false cause fallacy. But it's basically when the arguer tries to make connections where connections don't exist. It, it gets this idea from like a gunslinger shooting a wall a hundred times and then painting uh, a bullseye around like a cluster of bullets. Because hypothetically, if you shoot the wall enough times, there are going to be natural, there are going to be natural patterns. There's gonna be natural clusters that show up if you're just not looking. But if you paint the target around them, then you can make it look like you're just an expert shooter. That wasn't the case, they weren't really aiming. But it kind of goes to show that 
there are kind of patterns or correlations that exist in life, but kind of what we were talking about earlier, just because there, there are patterns that we can see doesn't necessarily mean that those two things are connected or that one causes the other. That's why it's called the false cause fallacy. So a big one that this is actually found in, in terms of LDS discussion about apologetics and the like, is the Book of Mormon's relationship to other 18th century publications such as View of the Hebrews or The Late War and certain other similarities to other books that may be found. However, even if these patterns do exist, that doesn't prove that Joseph Smith used those texts to fabricate the Book of Mormon. And in fact, if you, if you take a look at some of the up-to-date scholarship on this, there are some textual evidences within the Book of Mormon to help challenge the assumption that the Book of Mormon is just another pseudo-archaic text. Um, I'll be sure to link that below. But uh, while this shouldn't dissuade you from like making observations and making connections and being able to put things in their proper historical context, critical thinkers need to keep an eye out for the possibility that sometimes just coincidences happen by random chance. The no true Scotsman fallacy, besides being really fun to say, is an it's, it's a fallacy that, that appeals to purity. It's, it's basically, you, you appeal to a specific definition of a word and proceed to discount all the other interpretations of that, of that word to help disprove other people's arguments. And, and the name comes from an example given by Anthony Flew, where he says, no true Scotsman puts brown sugar in porridge. Or in other words, the true members of one group don't do or believe why thing. And it's kind of appealing to this strict, limited definition of that, of that X group. And so most members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are familiar with this argument when it comes to our church members Christians. I remember being told several times on my mission, for instance, that real Christians believe in the Trinity or test a modern revelation like the Book of Mormon by prior revelation, the Bible. However, this kind of shifting in definitions does little to actually prove anyone's point, and the arguer would need to demonstrate how their definition of Christians is superior to that of uh, members of the church like us when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. So again, just because you shift definitions around doesn't mean that first off that the, you're justified in shifting those positions and second off you would you would you and whoever you're arguing with would need to agree on definitions if you're going to have constructive argument so keep that in mind another important fallacy is the either or fallacy also referred to as kind of a, a false dichotomy or black and white fallacy it, it's committed when the arguer sets up a false binary in a discussion where there are only two options and that there are no other options. Um, an example of this in relation to LDS theology would be someone being told that they have to denounce the family of proclamation to the world or admit they hate gay people. Critical thinkers, of course, would be able to state that there are a plethora of other ways to support the proclamation without hating people who have same-sex attraction. And in fact, if you were to ask every church leader we have today, I sincerely doubt that any of them would tell you to go out and actively do things to hate gay people. That, that just doesn't seem like something President Nelson, um, the one who just gave the most recent talk on being peacemakers, that doesn't seem like something up his alley. The arguer would need to prove first that those are the only two options 
before they can support the conclusion that those are the only two options. So again, it's just kind of jumping to conclusions when they really shouldn't. The argument to moderation fallacy, also known as a false compromise fallacy, is, is kind of the opposite of the false dichotomy one or the black and white fallacy. The false compromise fallacy happens when an arguer asserts that a position is correct simply due to how it's a compromise between two extremes. So an example of this would be someone saying that lots of people think that Moses or Joseph Smith was a prophet or that Paul was, apostle, was an apostle or he was a fraud. But the truth is, is that he was probably just a guy who was sincere but wrong. So you can kind of see the problem there. It's, it be, even if it's just kind of a, a middle position between two extremes doesn't necessarily mean that either one of those extremes is wrong. In other words, you would need to support that conclusion using specific premises. You can't just say that it's because in the middle of two, it's in the middle of two positions, therefore it's true. That That's not a really solid argument, at least from a deductive perspective. A hasty generalization fallacy is characterized by drawing conclusions about a group of people based on the actions of a few people in that group. So this would be like someone saying, I found a few missionaries that were rude or ignorant about a given topic, therefore all missionaries are rude and ignorant. Again, this is, this is making an assumption why it would need to be shown. So you would need to be able to prove that every single missionary is ignorant and rude in order to be able to arrive at that conclusion. It's kind of like an inductive argument gone horrendously wrong. After all, the fact that some missionaries don't know something doesn't mean that all of them don't know something. Or in fact, if you talk to them, a lot of them know quite a lot. There are a lot more variables at play when it comes to someone's education. And hasty generalizations are characterized by their lack of accounting of all of those variables. The genetic fallacy, also known as poisoning the well, is similar to kind of the ad hominem fallacy in a way. The genetic fallacy states that an argument is untrustworthy because of the background education or the goals of the person making that argument. A huge example pertinent to everyone reading this or listening to this is people who listen or look at FAIR as an organization. If I had a nickel for the amount of times I've heard people try to discredit an argument because it came from FAIR, I'd have more nickels than I'd care to admit. But as we learned about in the previous article, conclusions are arrived at based on the premises, not who made the premises. And so anyone is capable of making a good argument and dismissing arguments and conclusions because, who they, because of who they came from is the epitome of bias and the antithesis of critical thinking. So of all the fallacies, definitely watch out for this one, especially as, as you're trying to engage in critical thinking. The tu quo que fallacy is one that many people are guilty of, and unfortunately, it's one that I've even seen some members of the church participate in. It's, it's, this fallacy is committed when someone tries to justify the shortcomings of their arguments by pointing out the weaknesses of their opponent's arguments. So an example of this would be when someone asks about the Bible and archeological evidence there, and the other person, and the other person points out the fact that the Bible or, the, you know, in this case, the Book of Mormon has incomplete archeological records as well. And both of them are just kind of pointing their fingers at each other saying, well, you just have problems too. And 
that doesn't really prove anybody's point. It does nothing to actually protect your own premises. You're just trying to point out the shortcomings in everyone else's. And so while it's important to be able to kind of ask questions and evaluate positions, see if there's any hypocrisy in there at all, it's important to not mistake asking questions and trying to clarify position and doing that with actually defending your own premises. Because those two things are very, very different. The slippery slope fallacy states that one decision will lead to one outcome and then, and then another and then another and then eventually arrive at a conclusion that is either preposterous and or terrible. An example of this found in, in discussions about LDS theology is, this, is actually this idea of personal revelation. Uh, a critic might claim that because we accept the idea of personal revelation, we may be inspired to break our covenants and consequently break the law of chastity. Therefore, the idea of personal revelation is bad because it leads to breaking the law of chastity. So putting aside the fact that it's my understanding the spirit wouldn't tell us to break our covenants, this is a logical fallacy in the sense that personal revelation does not necessitate the idea that will break our covenants. Generally, it's a good practice to avoid kind of large improbabilities and hypotheticals like that in a conversation anyway. Uh, critical thinkers in general should focus on specific behaviors and ideas and act accordingly. If you don't, you just you end up isolating people and it's just not pretty. Special pleading is a fallacy that refers to an instance that the arguer would ask for an exception to the rule in regards to a specific premise. In other words, they, they specially plead that someone or something be an exception to the rule of some kind or a rule of some kind. An example of this found in LDS theology is where, where people will state that there were no prophets after Jesus to, to members of the church. We'll then cite that the term prophet is used repeatedly to refer to messengers of God in the New Testament and that, and that those prophets were understood to be authoritative and foundational like the apostles were, to which the critic would reply, well, that doesn't count. Asking the, to change the rules when a premise is shown to be faulty doesn't make the premise any stronger and thusly does not support the conclusion, hence why it's classified as a fallacy. Equivocation fallacies are characterized by using the same term different ways. That is, changing the meaning of a term partway through the argument. An example of this that's actually a little bit more subtle that not a lot of people think about is when we talk about faith in LDS theology and history. So consider this premise that may be offered by a critic. So for instance, the biblical texts teach that we're saved by grace through faith. The second premise would be the LDS church has leaders who in the past have said that we are saved by grace through faith and works. And the conclusion would, that this critic would come to is that the LDS believe differently than the Bible. Now, at first glance, this, this actually may seem right. And, you know, the, this might be a home run, they might say. But that, what they don't know is that the term faith ends up shifting definitions over time within that argument. So the term faith in premise one, according to scholars and research, is, is likely understood to be as an allegiance to God. And, and that's affirmed by LDS and non-LDS scholars, by the way. Um, but the term as used in premise two, and by most people in the 19th century, the term faith is more synonymous with this idea of belief. So the, 
the word faith in premise one means something different than the word faith in premise two. And when you put both of them in their proper context, you come to find out that they're not saying anything all that much differently at all. In the same sense that if you have an allegiance to something, then you're going to have, you know, kind of actions that go along with it. And that's very similar to what kind of early church leaders were talking about when they said, well, you have belief and works. They kind of represent something more than just a, a passive acceptance of something in your mind. So equivocation is definitely fallacious in nature because, it, you know, the premises don't don't really support the conclusion the way the arguer would hope they would. But it's also kind of tricky to spot, so definitely keep an eye out for it. The red herring fallacy is characterized by bringing up something unrelated or mostly unrelated to your point in an attempt to distract from the real issue. This fallacy can be characterized in the following conversation. A critic says, Mormons believe that you're saved after all you can do. It's an impossible gospel. Have you done everything you can do? To which the member replies, well, hold on a moment. Research shows that the term after all we can do is more synonymous with things like in spite of all we do. Lots of non-members used that phrase during Joseph Smith's time. And when they used it, it's, it's likely that they meant in spite of what we do instead of after all we can do. To which the critic replies, well, that doesn't change the fact that your Book of Mormon affirms the Trinity. As you can kind of see, the, the topic shifted under the burden of additional scrutiny. And the discussion as to whether or not the Book of Mormon teaches modalism or Trinitarianism is a completely different discussion from the discussion to be had about 2 Nephi 25-23, which has the phrase, after all you can do. This attempt to distract from the original topic does nothing to protect or maintain the strengthen the original premises or conclusion. And so that's, that's additionally problematic if you're trying to support your point. An erroneous appeal to authority is an equally inappropriate fallacy and is the flip side of kind of well poisoning that we talked about earlier. It's characterized by appealing to what something or more specifically someone says as being the be all end all that proves that something is true. So for example, uh, a Christian may say that because the Bible outlines a world uh, shaped like a dome, there's 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 a bit to be said there. We should we should believe it too because they are authorities. Unfortunately, similar to to the well poisoning fallacy, just because the argument came from a specific source, and even an authoritative one, that that, that doesn't necessarily prove that that source is right or that the premises are true. While we should be willing to note the extensive time and effort that professors, researchers, historians, and, and other authorities have in their fields of study. We have to remember that the arguments are good or bad based on their premises, not based on who made them. A loaded question is one that doesn't really have a correct answer, no matter what the question is, because there is a, there's an unjustified or controversial assumption baked into it. An example of this is found in the hypothetical question asked by a critic, have you always been a brainwashed member of that cult? No matter how you answer that question, it's already making the assumption that first, you're brainwashed, and second, that the church is a cult, usually in the harmful sense. And both of those would need to be demonstrated in a separate argument in order for this specific argument or question to be valid. Sometimes loaded questions can be methods of disguising ad hominem attacks too. 
it, it's interesting how a lot of these fallacies can kind of blend together. So keep an eye out for that. The Gish Gallup fallacy gets its name from a skilled young Earth creationist debater by the name of Duane Gish. His style of debate included kind of long lists of points, and thus the fallacy is named after him, and it's characterized by an attempt of burying the arguer's opponents, and many different and mostly not very good claims, sources, and arguments. The assumption here is that it takes far less time to make a claim as it does to disprove a claim. And one of the devious things about this fallacy is that if they're able to make 100 arguments and you are able to successfully refute 99 of them, the critic can point to the one that you weren't able to refute and claim victory. In, in a lot of, um, kind of time delineated debates, it's difficult to address every single point that someone makes. A very popular example of this right now in LDS culture is the CES letter, or it's a type of Gish Galloper. It's written by Jeremy Runnels. And despite the fact that the claims made in the letter have been addressed and debunked over and over again, um, the CES letter's tactic of presenting dozens and dozens of arguments makes it difficult for the inexperienced reader to parse through all the information. The strength of the arguments isn't in the premises or the information in it, rather it's based on the fact that the arguer is manipulating the circumstances around people's intake of the information, rather than focusing on specific arguments and premises themselves. The perfectionist fallacy describes an instance where a solution to a problem is rejected because it doesn't solve the problem perfectly. As those who are familiar with LDS and history, LDS history and theology well know, uh, this is often brought up in the topic of prophets. Um, in LDS theology, prophets are used to fill the role or solve the problem of kind of testifying of Jesus Christ, and they are they're allegedly given authority from God to teach us about him. However, as per our theology, they're also not perfect. And so a lot of people will say that this is, this is a problem and that prophets need to be perfect in order to be legitimate. But this, of course, is implying this fallacy because even if they're, just because they're not perfect doesn't mean that they don't accomplish their job or don't testify of Jesus Christ's divinity. Pointing out the fact that prophets aren't perfect doesn't change the fact that prophets help solve the problem of bridging the gap that exists between God and us. Shifting goalposts is a fallacy that's similar to special pleading, and it's characterized by changing the complaint in such a way as to remove, as to narrow the question so that answers given to the previous question no longer fit the category. So they have to kind of like change how they answer it. An example of this is often found in LDS apologetics when referring to like archeological evidence about the Book of Mormon. So consider the following hypothetical conversation where a critic would say, there is no archeological evidence that supports the Book of Mormon. And the member would respond, well, putting aside the fact that a lot of things that were considered problematic in the Book of Mormon have now been verified by modern science, such as like the use of metal plates to keep records and scriptural records in the Middle East. There's also discussion about places like the Nihim region, which matches the description of Nahum in the Book of Mormon. D does that not count? To which the critic would reply, well, that doesn't account for the fact that there's not archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon found in the New World. So do you know where Zarahemla is kind of a thing. You see how the complaint shifted from all archaeological evidence to New World archaeological evidence for Book of Mormon cities. 
such attempts are used to evade the fact that the points were defeated, and it doesn't really do anything to protect the premises found in the original argument. Naturally, um, when, when, this is, when this happens, it changes the kind of answer that needs to be given. And all of these things together kind of put it together in kind of this fallacious argument category. An appeal to nature fallacy is a type of kind of, it's, it's an appeal to authority in a way, in, in which nature is set as the ultimate standard of kind of right and wrong. So in other words, um, an appeal to nature states that because a behavior or observation is found in nature, it must consequently be a good or true thing. Um, an example of this is found in, in LDS discussions about the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, many proponents of same-sex relationships will point to instances where different species of animals engage in homosexual activity in order to show that homosexual activity is morally acceptable. However, this point presupposes that nature is the highest moral authority, which would need to be demonstrated before you can make an argument like that. An appeal to ignorance, simply put, is a claim that because there is no evidence to the contrary, something must be true. Or on the flip side of that, because something has ever been tr proven true, it must be false. An example of this given by the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy is, nobody has ever proved to me that there is a god, so I know there is no god. This is also found in reference to exclusively LDS theology when it comes to things like the Book of Mormon and archaeology and DNA in the Book of Mormon too. Just because we don't know where the city of Zarahemla is doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And so, while we should always be willing to like look at new information and use critical thinking skills to evaluate the possible validity of claims, we should be wary of saying that because we don't know something, it's therefore definitively true or false or exists or doesn't exist. One fallacy that I found to be particularly devious is gaslighting. Actually, I, I've heard of this term before. I didn't know there was actually a fallacy. It's based off of the 1944 film Gaslight. And, and this fallacy is characterized by attempting to call into question the sanity of the arguer's opponent by challenging their experience or distorting established facts that are provided by their opponent. So, for example, I remember being in a discussion with somebody who was, ex and who we were talking a little bit about how Joseph Smith talked about this council of gods. And I was explaining to them that um, Joseph did teach this concept of the Council of Gods, and I referred to a couple of different sources, and the person I was debating with promptly replied with, well, no, he didn't talk about it there. And admittedly, I was, I was thrown for a loop, and I spent the next hour or so, while the conversation was going on, mind you, so it probably wasn't good conversation etiquette. I was going over my sources again, double-checking all the, all the points that I had made, making sure that I was actually seeing what I was actually seeing. And when I, by the time I was able to actually confirm that Joseph Smith did in fact affirm there was a council of gods, as per my cited sources, it was, it was, it was already too late. The tactic had succeeded in derailing my conversation and it, it all just kind of ended there. It didn't lead anywhere. And to this day, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but in reality, you have to understand that gaslighting can either be purposeful or unintentional in the same way that logical fallacies can either be purposeful or unintentional, all other kinds of logical fallacies, I mean. So, as you can imagine, gaslighting doesn't actually disprove anybody's premises, um, making it fallacious and arguably manipulative in 
some instances. Because again, you can you can ask questions where you're you're saying, hey, where are you seeing this? Maybe I'm missing something. Coming at a place, uh, coming at the question from a place of curiosity and willingness to figure out what the other person believes. But if you just say, well, no, it doesn't, and then attempt to kind of dismiss them, then that kind of falls in this category of gaslighting and is consequently fallacious. An unfalsifiable claim is kind of tricky to deal with and employ due to its kind of limited context. It, it pulls its roots from kind of scientific discussion where falsifiable claims are, fall are fallacies that, that talk about claims that can't be verified. So the most commonly used ones, or where you find this most commonly, at least in terms of LDS theology, is discussions about God. For instance, one person may say that something happened because God made it happen. Um, this is an unfalsifiable claim. We have no way to objectively prove that God did or didn't do this, at least using scientific methods. And honestly, I've found a lot of discussions about this to be somewhat futile for just this reason. Uh, we talked about how similar statements are um, are kind of also fallacious, but it's equally unfalsifiable to say that X thing happened because of God, as it is to say, God can't exist because the universe doesn't need a God to function. Again, we just have no way to prove either of those things objectively as it stands right now. And so we have to find other ways to talk about God's existence or non-existence if we really want to be able to employ that. Finally, we have the fallacy fallacy which is the great equalizer of all the different fallacies, as I like to think of it. This fallacy states that even if fallacious reasoning is used, the proposed conclusion may still be true. So for example, and in the spirit of the previous fallacy about unfalsifiability, even if we concede that the belief in God is unfalsifiable, the mere fact that a fallacy is present doesn't make it impossible that God exists, kind of a thing. This is, this is why critical thinking is so important. We have to be willing to understand what our assumptions are and limit the amount of fallacies we employ, but, but also realize that even if we do see fallacies, the arguments and conclusions that other people make and that we make may still be true. It's just, it's kind of tricky and it requires a lot more deep thought and consistent communication in order to be able to arrive at better conclusions. And honestly, a lot of it comes just through the passage of time. In conclusion, that was a lot. <laughs> and there are far more fallacies that have been, that have gone unmentioned here that deserve some serious attention. Um, maybe I'll go over a few in, in other episodes as the need arises. However, these fallacies are common enough to where I think that critical thinkers would would find them to be useful or being able, it's useful to be able to identify them. I do think that being able to understand logic and logical fallacies can serve as a useful guideline for being able to evaluate information. I encourage you to review these often and see if you can practice identifying them in both religious and non-religious contexts. As you do so, I, I promise you'll be able to figure out how to be able to parse through information more effectively and be able to avoid conclusions that are inaccurate. That way, you can keep solving problems and become a more informed and decisive critical thinker. As long as we act with charity, the pure love of Christ, and act in kindness, 
we can become the kind of thinkers and believers God wants us to be. And I think that's kind of important. In a lot of these discussions, it's easy to become kind of condescending. Like, oh, you employed a logical fallacy. Haven't you studied this sort of thing? Kind of thing. Let's not do that. Um, or at least can we, well, I, I, would, I would hope that we would actively try to avoid that kind of discussion. We, we all make mistakes. We're all learning. And we should be focused on trying to build people up and arrive at correct conclusions to arrive at true principles together rather than just simply point out the faulty premises that other people may have. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. And if you do that, you should be good. That was mostly what I wanted to be able to talk about today. So once again, thank you for kind of tuning in. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to be able to discuss epistemology. So be sure to keep an eye out for that. Once again, check out the resources at FAIR, the Come Follow Me with FAIR podcast. Take a look at the website that talks about the upcoming FAIR conference. Again, we would love to be able to see you there. But in the meantime, just be sure to have a fantastic rest of your day.